Welcome to the Coop Tank, people. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And I got to tell you something. I'm excited to have my guest today. You know, when I was a freshman back at Stockton State, he was a senior. And just a few months ago, our alumni, Bonnie Putterman, who was graduated around the same time with us, and Sarah Farrat Crawley planned an alumni weekend. And what it was, it was classes from the 70s and the 80s, and we all went down to Stockton. And, and like 200 or 300 people showed up. And... It was just a blast and everyone got along and it's just something, my wife's from Stockton too, and, and, and we had talked about, I think there was something in the air in the Pine Barrens because everybody, when you see someone from Stockton, you automatically, you bond with them. It's not like not like fraternity stuff, but it's amazing. And and my guest uh, had a big part of the of the alumni weekend, and I was sitting there having a beer with him, and I said, you got to come on my show. And he probably thought, Cooper, you're drunk, but now he is on my show. And my guest is Tim Lenahan. How you doing, Tim? Hey, Coop. How are you? Yeah, it was an amazing weekend. Um, it's funny because people are like, oh, do you do this every year? And I'm like, uh, no, we do it every five, but uh, – and that's good because my liver couldn't do it every year, by the way, after those uh, three days. So, but uh, yeah, you're right about Stockton. There is, there's really something special. There's a special bond, uh, I think, uh, especially from that time and that era. It was kind of a different place to go to, you know, still then. So I think uh, we really have a good bond, you know, the, that group from the 70s and 80s. Now, I got to ask you, I want to talk about how you got to become into soccer, being a coach, but. You recently retired. What is it like? First of all, tell the listeners what what it is like to be the coach, like the work. I mean, I know it's hours upon hours, but what's it like when, you, when you're working? And then when you retire, do you just decompress or what happens? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, it was a lifelong passion. I was a full-time IT guy at the FAA, um, and I would run over to Stockton. And, uh, you know, be the assistant coach. I got paid a thousand bucks. Um, and then I became the head coach and got paid 3000 bucks. So I tripled <laughs> my salary. Um, but we had some success and I was able to then, you know, after eight years at Stockton as the head coach, five as the assistant, um, get the job at Lafayette college in Eastern Pennsylvania, which is a small division one school. So once you, you know, you make that step to division one, you know, people will pay attention to you a little bit more. And, and we were able to win, you know, the championship each of my three years there, which then parlayed into the Northwestern job. Now, Northwestern hadn't won a game in two years, you know, when I took over the job. So the, it's all encompassing. It's not really, you know, it's not mentally healthy to say it's not just what you do. It's really who you are. And, um, you know, it's really on your mind all the time. So between the recruiting, the tactics, the personal development of the of the players, it's it's a lifestyle that you know it's it's just all encompassing. And and to be honest, the anxiety too, you know, really kind of kicks in even after all those years. It, it started to become a relief to win, and you know, still just as painful to lose. So. You know, one of the reasons to step down is like you just, you know, um, you know, the, the bury that anxiety. Now, I'm lucky I still get to do the TV uh, games on the Big Ten Network. So that's kind of giving me my soccer fix. I still get to keep in touch with all the coaches, um, you know, throughout the Big Ten when I have to talk to them about the games. But, 
yeah, there you you got to hit the brakes a little bit, and but uh, 100 miles an hour to zero is a very quick stop. So trying to find 50, you know, I'm trying yes. to kind of ease my way to, to drive 50 a little bit here and and make sure I keep myself active and busy and and engaged w- without all the anxiety. And that's the good thing about the broadcasting is, you know, you, you, you're not, I, I empathize with the coaches, like the last five minutes, both coaches, one team trying to win, one team trying to catch up. I do feel a little bit of stress, but I go home and I don't stare at the ceiling for, you know, eight hours like I would after, you know, I was coaching. Would you do that? I mean, would, would you, because it's funny, because you're an Eagles fan, and when I moved back here, you know, I noticed, you know, when the Eagles would lose, I wouldn't put sports radio on. I mean, in L.A., right. you, 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 they lose. You walk home from the bar, someone goes, ah, Philly sucks, and you, you just go home, and you don't deal with it. Right. But here, the whole, the town would be, like, devastated, and we're not involved in it. What is it like? I mean, would you go home, and is it one of those things where you're just in a funk for a few days because you're the leader you can't really show that how would you deal with a, a a loss well it's um you know there's a kind of a 24-hour rule you know you, you're allowed to feel sorry for yourself for 24 hours and then you know um yeah i remember in 2011 we lost to uh depaul four to nothing and down at depaul and my assistant coach and we played midday he lived in chicago and he came in on the bus and he goes, you know, you need me to come back? Because he lived right there. It was, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We played like a noon game on a Wednesday at all the local schools there. And we got our ass kicked. And I said, no, go home, open up a big bottle of Jack Daniels, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, I'm not sure if he opened Jack Daniels, but I can tell you we I put some analytics together, and it turned out I, we were pretty good. We just needed to clean some stuff up and – we went on to win 11 straight games after that and win a big 10 championship. So, you know, you feel sorry for yourself for 24 hours. And then after that, you, you kind of get recharged, you know, what changes, what corrections are you going to make? Um, some sting more than others, you know, overtime losses are especially painful. Um, they got rid of overtime this year because of the, the injuries in soccer, but um, yeah. And then, like I said, the wins are good. The winds are, you know, exhilarating and feel great, but the, the the joy of the wind goes away a lot faster than the pain of the loss, and that's the that's the problem with coaching. Now, did you ever fathom? And I mean, I know you, you want to do well, but did you ever fathom that when you went to a school that hadn't won in two years, that you would do? It, it, you you brought them into prominence you brought them into the 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 tournament how did you build that and did you ever think because i talk to musicians a lot and i go did you ever think this song was gonna be a big hit and they go no and they go oh my god did you i mean i know you you're a coach you did great at lafayette you're going you expect your team to do good but did you think you would do as well as you did because you really built a program there yeah you know you hope to be 500 first year you know you hope to win a game right so you know, um, my first year, we won one game, and it was the last game of the year. So that ended a 35-game, you know, losing streak. And uh, I didn't expect – because I had instant success when I took over at Stockton and at Lafayette. So I thought, you know, we would have similar kind of success, you know, some motivation, some speeches, some jokes. And the guys would – well, we had a talent void. And the talent void at the Big Ten level – 
uh, they, they're going to make you pay. And uh, so what we did was, you know, you know, you know, we're Stockton. So, you know, we are, we all kind of, I think at Stockton have a little bit of an underdog mentality too. Right. So, you know, I tried to recruit other kids who were underdogs, who, you know, who knew that we didn't sell, we sold, you know, that it was tough. It was going to be challenging. And, you know, you wanted to find the kids that, that wanted that, that wanted that challenge. And, and we were able to, you know, get lucky. We only have half the scholarships of everybody else as well. You know, we had five scholarships. Everybody else has 10. And uh, so, you know, you had to find some kids that got financial aid. You had to find some kids that could afford it. And, you know, you could help them get admitted to a place like Northwestern. And uh, you had to find some underdogs. And uh, I think we kept that underdog mentality for, you know, the next 20 years, to be honest with you. And, and again, you, as you can see, not only is it a Stockton thing, it's a Philadelphia area thing, you know, to be the underdog. And, you know, no excuses. Just put your head down and, you know, try to find the right guys. In, you know, the, all the leadership stuff that they talk about, the right guys for your program, put them in the right seat, give them roles that they're comfortable with. Don't ask them to do things that, you know, doesn't fit their personality, their talent, and try to mix and match to cover people's weaknesses. And, you know, by our fourth year, we were in the Big Ten Championship and in the NCAA Tournament. By my sixth year, we were in the Elite Eight, and, and we returned to the Elite Eight uh, two years later. But yeah, all said and done, we won, you know, went to the tournament nine times and, and, uh, you know, three big 10 championships. So I had hoped to be 500 someday, <laughs> you know, if you get to 500, you're probably keeping your job, you know, at that point, um, after your four or five years, but, you know, four years later, we were, you know, 15 and five and went to the big 10 championship. We lost in the final, but, you know, still a remarkable run by that group. Well, now as you're getting better. Are you still going for the underdogs Do, or does your, are you still going for that core value that said, this is what built our program? Cause you know how it is in pro sports or any sports. Yeah. When people start getting better, they go, Oh, well now I can get the blue chip. Did you still say, okay, here's who I want. You know, this is what made us. And I don't want to take away from that. And did you do that? Yeah, we still did that. Maybe we added a couple players in there that were blue chips, you know, that now uh, were coming to us because we were good. And that's one of the traps that you get into is you, you start, you know, kids that you're recruiting, they're coming there because you're good, not to make you good. And, um, but we still, you know, we still, because we only had five scholarships too, we still had to, you know, Moneyball actually do lectures on Moneyball and college soccer on how we, you know, literally moneyballed the program um, to be successful. And our all-time leading scorer, Matt Eliason, was a, you know, a recruited walk-on. Like he likes to say, um, heavy on the walk-on, light on the recruiting. Um, you know, our All-American, Dave Roth, is a financial aid kid. Chris Ritter, who was Defensive Player of the Year, he got turned down by Wisconsin and uh, Michigan. And, you know, lived right in the area here a couple of miles away. He was from five generations of Northwestern. And he told his mom, the only rule I have for looking for schools, I'm not going to Northwestern because it's too close. <laughs> well, he wound up coming after Michigan and Wisconsin told him no. 
and, and you know, signed a homegrown contract with the Chicago Fire. Uh, Joey Calistri is our second all-time leading scorer. You know, uh, again, uh, gritty. His club coach said this. You know, was it wasn't. He used to come off the bench for his club team, and I asked him. He said uh, the club coach said this is the exact quote. Yeah, yeah. Joey's pretty good. He, but you know, all he does is really work hard and score goals. And I'm like, okay, sign me up for sign me up for one of those. And he went on to become our second all-time league scorer. And I think when we got away from that a little bit towards the end, you know, they built uh, some beautiful new facilities at, at Northwestern on the lake and, you know, beautiful. We had this old locker room, you know, in an old gym, my office, there was, you know, probably asbestos falling on my head, you know, the paint chips every day on the desk from the ceiling, from the, you know, the, the windows that leaked a little bit. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. We had this cramped locker room, these old showers, you know, somebody, one of the old alums joked, you know, when Corona started happening, that they believe Corona started on the, the shower floor of Pat and Jim, you know, the old gym. <laughs> and then we moved to the Taj Mahal. And, you know, I think we, we lost a little bit of that. The kids didn't want to be the underdogs. I thought we were still the underdogs. We still can't match, you know, Maryland or Indiana, because if you're coming there, you know, a lot of guys will come to college, the really elite players, for a year or two before they turn pro, you know. Um, and if you're going to do that, there's easier choices than to come to Northwestern and, you know, take physics or whatever, if that's your path. So we got away from that, and I think we they, – they, it's not that I, – I still want it to be the underdog. I don't think the players I recruited want it to be the underdog anymore. But well, yeah, we stayed the underdog forever. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was watching. Uh, you sent me that clip, that documentary, the the, right. the twelve minute uh, thing Northwestern did on you, and and it seemed that your your players really respected you. And you're a few years older than me. We come from a generation like I know when I played high school sports, my coaches were dicks. I mean, a lot of them were just mm. they were just like that, you know. And and it was high school, and you're like, what the hell? For you. How did you, I mean, all your, you could tell all your players really respected you. And I know you have the credo, nice guys finish first, but right. how do you learn that as a coach? Because did you have any like jerk coaches to you when you were younger and you said, I never want to be like that? Or was everyone always, you know, encouraging the coaches you had when you were younger? No, you, you learn from different coaches. Um, sometimes you learn what a bad example is, you know, and, uh, you know, sometimes you learn that this is not what you're going to do. And, you know, the guys on that documentary are all have, have, you know, five years behind them in terms of wisdom too. All right. So they may, some of them may have thought I was a dick, you know, when, you know, you're getting on them and you're pushing them beyond, you know, in order to have growth, you have to get out of your comfort level, comfort zone. And in order to be out of your comfort zone, you're going to be uncomfortable, right? So, you know, sometimes when you're young and you, your brain's not fully developed, um, you, you don't have the, the you know, the, the mental capacity to understand that this guy, A, really cares about me as a human being, really cares about me as a human being, and wants me to be my best, okay? So, um, you know, there's times where guys, you know, mad at me but i think like i said by the time 
the season's over their senior year and they have some time to reflect by the time graduation comes along, you know, and the, the, you know, the, the emotion of losing your last game and let's face it, everybody loses their last game except for one team. And, uh, you know, when you lose that last game of senior as a senior, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And that being said, that's also when you have seniors that know they're playing their last game, they play out of their minds usually. And that's why you see like a St. Peter's can beat a Kentucky in basketball, right? Because one, one guy's thinking about being a pro and one guy knows this is the last really game of my life. And, but by the time graduation comes six months later, and then certainly when they come back, you know, as alums, there's just a different reflection on how great an experience that they had. And that was one of our things to be the best experience in college soccer. And, and part of that was, you know, what you put into the kids in terms of their personal development. And, and I still, you know, I'm on various listservs with, you know, different groups during that time. I was just in Austin last weekend for a wedding uh, from Matt Eliason, who was our all-time leading scorer. So I just flew down really pretty much for the day because if anybody invites me and thinks enough of me to invite me to their wedding, I do everything I can to, to make that, you know? So I've been the Austin, Albany, Wilmington, Delaware, uh, Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, I'm sorry. Um, you know, so I, I've been to like Louisville, <laughs> you know, that's just in the last year. So usually there's two or three weddings a summer. And if anybody invites me, I, I, I do everything I can to try to make it. And, you know, like I said, nice guys finish first. And, and that's true. And, you know, there's three kinds of people in the world. And go, there's givers, there's takers, and there's matchers. Okay. The most successful people are givers. And that's, that's a fact. The least successful people are also givers. Givers who align themselves with takers that's you know so you got to set you know even though you're a nice guy the, the, there's a confusion between you know the, the the expression nice guys finish first the finish last is absolute is actually a mistake so leo de rocher who was the um i believe is the dodgers manager you know they were asking him about you know his team and how tough they were and gritty and he said, yeah, I like guys that are, you know, tough and nasty. He goes, like, for example, the manager of the other team, Mel Ott, he, he's probably the nicest, one of the nicest guys in baseball. But their team's going to finish last this year. So the newspaper the next day said, nice guys, dot, 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 finish last. So even the expression that we all use, that everybody uses when every time, you know, somebody wrongs them and they say, well, nice guys finish last. Nice guys don't finish last. Nice guys finish first. And again, once the kids know that you really care about them and the old adage, again, I'm going to give some leadership speak. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It is really true. And maybe they don't know that their first year, you know, I'm sarcastic. I'm from Philly. The, you know, they, people say, are you bilingual? I said, yeah, I speak English and sarcasm. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how we talk. That's how we, we, you know, we don't, we're not sarcastic to people that we don't like, you know, we, we're sarcastic to people we like, you know, we, that's how we say, I love you. We break each other's chops a little balls a little bit. Right. So, um, but and so they can't figure that out usually when they first get there, when you're, you know, you're teasing them a little bit about various things. And then once they 
know that you really care and you're committed to the program and, and you're thinking about this program, you know, 24 seven, and you're worried about their development as a person, they start to hear that sarcasm. They start to hear coaching as opposed to criticism. And, and once they do that, they, then, you know, then they're running through walls for you. Now, how did you get into soccer? Because, you know, it's like when I was, um, you're a few years older, as I said to me, and I remember I remember when the, we had the Philadelphia Fury. I remember they had that soccer team with uh, the Wizard of Oz, Pete Osgood, I used to go to games. Right, right. Peter and, Osgood, yeah. and then I remember when I was little, I wanted to play soccer, and I had the, uh, what was it, the Kikari. It was the Kyle Roach Jr. ball connected to a string that you kicked yeah, and yeah. it would come back. How did you get into soccer? Because, you know, Philadelphia has always been like, a foot, you know, and, and so you went to, you were from Pine Hill, right? You went to Overbrook, I believe. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Overbrook, and like I went to Cherry Hill East. It was football, you know, and then some people would play soccer. But how did you decide you wanted to play soccer? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia, to be honest with you, and in Southwest Philadelphia. And we moved to Pine Hill when I was 12 and, you know, had never really played soccer before. But the fence of my house was the fence of the high school. And actually, I would get detentions because if I wanted to walk down the street to go to the school, it was like three quarters of a mile, okay? Because I lived on the end of a dead-end street. I'd have to walk all the way down and then all the way back up to go to school. Now, if I jumped the fence, it's like 300 yards, right? So, so I jumped the fence every day to go to school, and then somebody would be out there once in a while, like, you can't jump the fence, and you'd get a detention. Like, But I'm, I'm like not walking like a mile, but I can walk 300 yards. So anyway, the fence was right there. So that means the fields were up there. So, and, you know, so I, you know, you're 12, I'm a sports junkie. There's no ESPN now. Then, you know, you listen to sports radio and you watch whatever you can, big five basketball, you know, just, you know, Al Meltzer and big five basketball on, you know, channel 17, right on whatever. So, I'm a junkie for sports. So I would go up to any event that was over the fence, you know, and we jumped the fence for all the football games that you had to pay for as well. And, and you know what was great. We had a family tradition when Overbrook still played and I'd be home for Thanksgiving, the nephews and nieces and stuff, they'd all come to my mom where my mom's house was. And we'd still jump the fence, you know, when I was, you know, in my mid forties, We'd all jump the fence. I, and I would tell the guy, listen, I'll go pay for everybody. It's just part of our tradition. They're like, yeah, fine. They don't care. Um, but, you know, you, you go up to basketball, wrestling, and one of the events that they would have is the soccer games where was the closest field to my house, so literally right over the fence. So I started going soccer, and one of the older kids in the neighborhood was on the Overbrook team. And, you know, so in junior high, you just started playing soccer. But you were there were about half the team had played already, and they were very good, and the other half of us were just starting, you know, at twelve. And uh, sure enough, the guys that had played already were, you know, some of the best players then in South Jersey. So, kind of Overbrook, same thing, you know, never won anything, never had a winning record, and uh, at that point we were in the Olympic Conference, and uh, you know, our senior year wound up winning you know, the Olympic conference uh, championship. And then a year later they won the, the uh, state championship. And that's pretty much it in overall history for their success. So I, I logistics played a lot of, you know, moving to a house that was on the fence 
you know, kind of changed my life. And then my senior year, too, the best player on our team and, and, and one of my best friends uh, got killed in a car accident. And so I had planned to I was going to go to Drexel and study computer science. And uh, I, I was just shattered, you know, I was just shattered. But I also wanted to take up his mantle because I wasn't a great player. I, I hit puberty, you know, some say never, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, probably close to 17 and a half. I was, you know, I mean, I was very late bloomer, you know, it's five foot two, three, whatever. And then, you know, blew up to six feet. So that awkward stage where you hit puberty and grow, that was me, my senior year. Right. So I had the stilts and the skinny legs. So I was never a great player, but, but, you know, my friend passed away. I, 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 I put, I started to really kind of maybe say, let's, let me do something to honor him. Right. So I put a little bit more in my game. I wound up going to Camden County College for a year. And again, now my body's growing and I, you know, I, I, I had some success there and then went to Stockton. You know, I played three years at Stockton and uh, same thing. I wasn't a starter, became a starter. And then my, my last year I was captain and, you know, made all conference. So again, the underdog story, you know, and uh, I'll share this with you. One of my greatest motivators is a guy named a teammate in high school named Mike Chance. Okay. And I, I never really shared this story until, you know, I retired, but in my yearbook, and I looked at this, what he wrote in my yearbook, probably a thousand times over my career. He wrote in my yearbook, Mike Chance, Tim, you can get yourself into any kind of position you want, as long as it doesn't involve soccer. Good luck, Tim. You'll need some. <laughs> so, so um, I did have a lot of luck, but I think he was wrong about the whole soccer thing. I'm just going to go and say that. But that's that's the you know. So if people ask you why you're you have this underdog mentality, it's because you're the underdog, right? Like it just uh, and you know people tell you they can't you can't win at Stockton, you couldn't win at Lafayette, you couldn't win at Northwestern. Well. We did, right? We did, and uh, so the, the you know that mentality is a is an all you know just who I am, and I think again it ties into both Stockton and Philadelphia, like we're the underdogs. Right? How how did you choose Stockton? Because I you know, I choose it. I'll be honest. My parents said I was paying for two years in my school, and I said okay, so I'm, I'm going to go to state school. And I, for some reason, I didn't want to go to Glassboro. I don't know why. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm like, no. a, and I think I was I was on the waiting list at Trenton, and I got accepted at Stockton. And my sister had gone to Trenton State, and and I picked Stockton, and I really knew not a lot about it. But I said, you know, it's a state school. And when I went down, it was uh, when I got there, it was amazing because, as we said, there was a certain feeling. I think because the whole campus is just like there and then you know you could go off to the arrowhead or the stockton pub you know which is still right, right down the street so yeah. i picked it why did you choose stockton was it because they they wanted you to play soccer or how did you end no, up there? i was a, I was a uh when i say a walk-on i mean i was a walk-on i came down for orientation and, and just walked out to the field <laughs> and, um but i chose they had i was a computer science major and so they had information and system sciences back then. So that was my major at Stockton. And, you know, I, I didn't really like Rowan and I couldn't have played at Rowan. 
Rowan at that point, you know, was national champion in division three. Um, so that was, I wasn't going to be able to play there, but I literally went to orientation in August, you know, two weeks before school started. Uh, I drove my parents' car down. I think my, my, uh, 1970 Corona was getting an Earl Shy paint that day for 99 bucks or whatever. And so I drove my parents' car down and I went to the coach and I said, yeah, I, you know, I played at Camden County. Um, you know, I, I like to play. And at that point Stockton, you know, was terrible. I think they had like 16 or 17 players on the team. And he said, well, we have a scrimmage tonight. You know, can you come, can you, can you play in the scrimmage? I'm like, well, I got to take my parents' car back. And uh, so, you know, it's 45 minutes or so, 50 minutes. So I drive the car back and then Earl Scheib still has my car. So I got to borrow my sister's car now, drive back down, no physical, (laughs) you know, no physical, no, no compliance, nothing, you know, just came back and, and uh, had a, I was the ball boy for the first half. But, you know, I don't know if he was testing me or or whatever, the coach to see, like, you know, how committed I was to doing this. But I drove back and I was the ball boy for a half. And then I got in the second half and I did okay. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, can you win, you know, come back? And, you know, we're in preseason right now. Can you come back? So my fitness level, you know, I played in the summer. The South Jersey men's league was a very good league back then because there was no real pro. You know, there wasn't much pro, uh, you know, in the early 80s. There wasn't much pro going on. So a lot of the good players, you know, played in this South Jersey league. And so I had pretty good fitness. I didn't have college level soccer fitness, you know, so I had to get a little bit fitter. And and like I said, I was a role player my first year. And then, you know, really, like I said, I'm just starting to physically grow from, you know, six foot, 135 pounds to, you know, a whopping six foot, 160, but it makes a big difference to the 25 pounds. And, you know, the next year we, we had a winning record, the first winning record in Stockton history. And then, you know, my last year when I was one of the captains, we, we made the ECACs, which was the first postseason appearance. It wasn't the NCAs, but it was the first, you know, and so again, you see this path that I've been on in terms of high school, then college, and I like to think that, you know, I had something to do with the success, um, even if it wasn't as much on the field in terms of being, you know, a great teammate and and somebody that, you know, your teammates could count on. And I think I carried over into my coaching as well. Now, how did your relations start with, relationship start with, what is it, Santiago Solari? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like he's he's, a, he's the, like I mean he coached Real Madrid. I mean he, this is he's a big shot. Like how do you know him? Because I know you were I remember you would post on Facebook, ladies, he's single or whatever. Because the guy's very he, handsome. Well, he's not okay. single. He's not single. <laughs> but how did that relate? Every, every time I do post a picture with him, you know, uh, a bunch of women chime in, and and that doesn't count the DMs that I get. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where they're asking me like, what's his deal? I think even on the online dating, I think I had a picture with him and the girl sent me, you know, this is probably 15, 20 years ago, sent me something like, I don't, you know, hi, who's the guy with you? (laughs) So, um, no. So what happened, Santiago? And that's one of the great trivia questions of all time. The only college player in history to win the Champions League went to Stockton. 
1994, the World Cup was coming to the United States, okay? And I was a part-time, part-time head coach working at, the, working at the FAA. And they put a call out for, you know, if you're going to be a training site for some of the World Cup teams, uh, a practice site. So in order to be a practice site, you had to be within an hour of Meadowlands, which is where, you know, the, the, the stadium was. Um, so we didn't fulfill that quota. But they also had teams that might want a training site, which means come for a couple weeks ahead of time, get acclimated to the, you know, whatever. So so we, I put together a, a try, a, a, you know, a triangular between Stockton, Marriott, Seaview, and then one of the casinos in Atlantic City. I'm not going to mention which one because I don't want to give a certain uh, person any credit if you know who I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> 45. Um, so uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so the casino would send over a limo anytime a representative came from either the World Cup. Or they came from France. So France was going to come to Stockton for seven days before they they played in the World Cup and get acclimated because it's an easy trip. You know, you land here, you go. So all they got to do is tie one of their last two games, and they wind up losing both games, one of them at home to Israel, I think. And then they lost to, I believe, Romania. Um, so they're not coming now. But at the draw, the World Cup draw, they said, you know, that somebody from France was there, mentioned to the Saudi Arabians, hey, you might want to check this place out in New Jersey for a training site. And uh, so sure enough, the Saudis came, and now they're coming for five weeks, right? They're coming for five weeks. And the coaches, who are now different coaches, because they fired the coach from the original time they were there to visit, um, are Solari's father and his uncle. His uncle's the head coach. The father's like the associate head coach. And so what they did was their first game was against Holland. So they had this team of 17 to 19-year-olds in Argentina training for like a month as Holland, how Holland would play. And so they brought that group up. They lived in the dorms. And so I had to take care of them. And then also I had a place at the Seaview taking care of the Saudis and take care of this Argentinian youth group. One of the players on that team was Santiago. So over the four weeks or so that they were there, you know, we developed a relationship. You could tell he was a little bit different in terms of his education and, you know, well-spoken. He spoke English, but not great English. And uh, I said, why don't you come to school here for a semester and improve your English? And he's like, that's a great idea. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so it's almost like, you know, I, I felt like it when they were leaving. And the Saudis did great, by the way. They made it to the second round. It's a very emotional. Um, emo it's like, uh, it was, again, a, an underdog story. You know, they had lost game 7 nothing in the previous World Cup. And, you know, this time they actually won two games. They beat Belgium. The guy scored the goal of the World Cup. It was a really emotional uh, thing. And I was with them, you know, the whole time I took a leave of absence from my FAA job. And um, so, yeah. And uh, 
you know, they left and you figure it's like when you see somebody at your college high school reunion, like, yeah, we got to do lunch sometime, you know, like, yeah, you never have lunch, right? <laughs> you just whatever. And then sure enough, we got a letter in Spanish. So I had to get it translated and it's from his dad. And he's like, he's coming. And I still didn't believe he was coming until I went up to the Philly airport and, you know, those beautiful locks got, a, you know, that long flowing hair got off the plane and there he was, you know, ready to play division three, you know, college soccer. And then he, you know, played for a, a semester at Stockton and was rookie of the year. Only made second team all region though, uh, but he was all conference rookie of the year. And then eight years later, you know, I get invited because his dad's still coaching. I'm the, I, I get invited to come over as a guest when he starts and plays 90 minutes and they win the Champions League. And he and I have a great picture lifting the trophy together. Uh, you know, so again, you know, we were only together, we were together during the, the, the Saudi time and then we were together, you know, for a semester, but he's become a, you know, a friend, a lifelong friend, you know, that I, I'm really proud of, you know, what he's done. Then he became the coach at Real Madrid. And then last year at Club America, when they played the Philly Union, it was his first time back, you know, to the area. And uh, we brought him down to Stockton and it, he was pretty emotional. Like, you know, the 28 years had passed, you know, since he was there and, you know, lived in Seacord and, you know, Bev Vaughn, remember Bev Vaughn, right? Do you remember Bev? She might not have been there, but she's a, she's a music teacher. We didn't give him organic chem as a class, <laughs> by the way. So one of the classes was the chorus. And um, so she was one of his teachers and, and if he was late, they had, you, you had to sing, I'm a little teapot in front of the, front of the, uh, you know, the group. And uh, I wish that we had uh, cell phones back then where we could have the great Santiago Solari singing, I'm a little teapot in front, in front of his music class. So, now, now, so that's how we, we came to be. And I probably text him once a week now, you know, his wife and I probably text more than that because she's very political and she wants it shared. She's obsessed with American politics, so she sends me all kinds of conspiracy stuff twice a week. So. Now, now that's not your only uh, tie to European soccer. Uh, messy and me. Tell me about that, because I remember you, you, you coached that game. I remember I, I watched it on TV. It was on like ABC, and I'm like, holy crap! I went to college with that guy. And remember you, you, you posted that you, you spent too much for your suit or something like that. Yeah, 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 but yeah. Tell me about that game because it was it a, was it? How did you get the Northwestern your students in there? How did you end up becoming the coach? Um. Yeah. Well, the other European tie we have was one of my assistants the first year, Jesse Marsh is now the head coach at Leeds in the Premier League. And uh, so that's – and he has coached in the Champions League. So the only two players with any college connection to the Champions League, by the way, Santiago and Jesse Marsh, the only two guys to coach uh, with college connections. You know, both are from, you know, our little pipeline here. So, no, they, they were coming – Messi and me – Messi was a game uh, – they had a game at Soldier Field, and it was an all-star game. And uh, I didn't, I hadn't heard about it, to be honest with you. So I'm getting calls and, you know, it was called Messi in France. Okay. You know, so, you, you know, you're getting a message saying, you know, it's friends of Messi. <laughs> yeah, so like the president's office, you know, called me and was like, yeah, they're trying to get in touch with you. They're friends of Messi. I'm like, ah, they probably want to use the field, you know, this, somebody's a friend of Messi, right? Who, 
but the name of the the thing was Messi and Friends, the the, the exhibition match. So they, I guess they sold about thirty thousand seats, and maybe you know break even was forty five thousand. I don't know for sure, but they were supposed to play in L.A. It got canceled, and then. Um, so, you know, th these it's for charity, but these players are getting paid. You know, they're getting paid to come and per game put on these events. And you got to fly in first class. They're not flying southwest, I can tell you that, these guys. So there was a bunch of guys that were supposed to come over um, that didn't come because they ran out of money. And that's, that's you know, that's, and, and because the game was on ESPN, they probably had a cancellation clause in their contract with ESPN because they were probably getting paid by ESPN. And then there was probably some cancellation clause or whatever they were getting paid, how to pay some of the bills. So guess who's one of the stars in the game? Santiago Solari. All right. So 20 years later, um, he's now just retired from playing, but he's, you know, he's Argentinian from the same town Messi's from. And uh, so they call, and I guess there was some connection through Santiago, but uh, they call, and they, I call them back, and they're like, we need five players, you know, to, for this game. And I'm like, I had just seen some guys, you know, we did a little alumni tournament, I just seen some guys, so I know, okay, this guy, this, you know, these five guys, you know, at least been on a treadmill in the last, you know, whatever. So they, and, and you get to coach, you get to be assistant coach for both teams. So that they know where you're, you know, they know what position to play in. Well, five guys got him enough to field a team, but Messi's not playing 90 minutes. And Thierry Henry, who was the captain of the other team, they're not playing 90 minutes. They're going to sub out. So they need, they call me the last day, five more players. All right. One guy's driving home. I hear all of a sudden, I call him. I hear, I go, what is that? He goes, I'm pulling over. My girlfriend's going to drive because I'm shaking, you know, because you're going to play with Messi. And then, uh, you know, one guy was getting ready because his other guy, Matt Elias, and we talked about, you know, he was he was the guy that was going, you know, I knew he was fit. And then his roommate was just packing up his, the truck with beer to go tailgate before they went and watched, you know, his roommate play, right? So... They call him. I'm like, listen, I can get you a seat, but you got to play the game too. You're gonna have a really good seat. I don't know how much you're gonna play. Blah blah blah. Well, these guys want out of this game. You know, they this is their, they're getting their. You know, they they're pros, but it's an exhibition. Messi comes off. So, so two starters on each team, and then three subs on each team, right? Ten Northwestern guys. Now alums, doctors, engineers. Uh, investment bankers, lawyers, you know, all the span the gamut of, you know, they're professionals, but they're not professional players. They're just, you know, professional business people. And uh, so it's so exciting, you know, and I'm, I'm there and Santiago's in the game too. So that connection there. And then 10 minutes in, you know, Tiran Reed chips the ball to Matt Elias and he pops it up on his chest and hits a full bicycle kick. Um, just unbelievable, right? Like I'm, I'm worried we're going to embarrass ourselves. And then it went viral, you know, amateur, he was the assistant vice president at GE Capital. 
And so amateur banker upstage is messy was in every <laughs> newspaper in the world, Chinese, Macedonian, like English, sign them up. And it went viral. It was number one on sports center. Um, they flew him into sports center two days later. I, I went with them. So, you know, we were sitting in the, in Bristol, Connecticut, you know, in the studio, um, you know, as they interviewed him, you know, about whatever. So, he winds up quitting his job and going and playing in Iceland. So I put together a, a, a group. I, I, there's a, a guy, Greg Latterman, who I'm friends with. His kids have come to my camp. But he's a really sharp guy. He started a company called Aware Records, which was John Mayer and The Fray. And, you know, he, he's a really smart entrepreneur. So we got together and we did some research and we found a couple Northwestern alums from 20 years ago that he knew from Kellogg, he's a, he was an instructor at the business school in, in entrepreneurship, but he knew these um, these couple guys that were producers and directors. So we put together this group and we 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 followed them around for three years and filmed, made a documentary out of it. So it was really cool. Like you know, on if you look up IMDb, it's it says Tim Lenihan, you know, producer, <laughs> Messi and me. And um, so we the documentaries out there on Amazon and Apple and just a really 28 minutes, just a great story. It wasn't the Disney ending, you know, because he got injured, but a tremendous growth opportunity for Matt uh, came about because of that. He had never been out of the country. He never had a passport. And uh, actually, you know, we filmed it six years ago. We finished filming and the girl that is in the documentary at the very end that he had just started dating is whose wedding I went to last week. So full circle. And when he hits the goal, when he hits the bicycle kick, the guy who picks the ball out of the net, Santiago Solari. So you, the worlds collided that day. Just amazing story. I gotta, I gotta ask you something. What, what, what do you? Because you, it's everything. You said the underdog and, and a lot of breaks have gone your way. Just, I think that's that's just, but that's not breaks. I think that's just karma that comes to people. I think something's Reed. happened. But what do you? What do you? What do you, I'm trying to think of the word, your success. What do you attribute your success to? Because you've been very successful. You've built programs. I mean, you produced a movie, which most people would love to do. You're, you're announcing soccer now, which most people want to do. You were took a team to the NCAAs, you know, the Elite Eight, which, you know, only a few people do. What do you attribute the success to? Was it just, was it networking with knowing the right people or, 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 or just being a good person? What do you attribute it to? I mean, I think I have a, you know, I'm a pretty personable guy, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable, um, you know, in most every situation. So in terms of, you know, personality, you know, I consider myself, you know, a little bit clever and witty and sarcastic and funny and, and, uh, you know, so when you're recruiting, you know, and you can go into parents' home and, you know, say, listen, I'm going to take care of your son if he comes here. I think it does come back to being a good person and good karma. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, it really does. Um, yeah, the breaks go your way, but like you said, you know, that's, you know, karma, you know, good things happen to good people, you know, and, you know, some bad things happen to good people, but it's, it's a part of life. And if you, I guess, if you expect good, you know, you, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, the old parable about the the guy who had a positive son and he had a negative son. And he sent his 
positive sun out to find negative people. And I'm paraphrasing the parable. And he comes back and he goes, I couldn't find any negative people. And he sent the negative sun out to find positive people. And the negative sun came back and said, I, I couldn't find any positive people. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's better to believe the best in people and be wrong once in a while than to believe the worst in people and be right once in a while. So, you know, I, I, I just think, you know, yeah, some people will be like, you know, you really stepped in it, <laughs> you know, multiple times. Um, but I'm super grateful too. Like I said, I, I just coached 20 years, you know, not only in the big 10, but one of the greatest academic institutions in the United States, in the world. And, uh, and I'm from Pine Hill, you know, like, you know, you kind of pinch yourself sometimes, like, how did I get here? And uh, I, I'm super grateful for the whole process. And like I said, when, you know, the, the forever underdog, but being a good person trumps everything, you know, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't think there's too many people in the in the coaching business, college coaching business who, you know, if you asked them what it, or or anybody really, if you ask them, you know, what about what do you think of Tim Linehan that they're not going to say something positive. One final question: what What are some of your fondest memories of Stockton, and, and what did you bring away from that campus? Because as I said earlier, it is like a magical place, and it's funny. I was at an event a few weeks ago. And this gentleman came up to me, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see you on LinkedIn. You know, you, you do that coop tank thing. You get some good guests. I said, yeah, I have, I'm having Tony Luke Jr. come on. I'm having Joe Conklin come on. I'm having a guy, Tim Lenahan, who's got a great story. And he's like, oh, my God, I know Tim Lenahan. And I was like, oh, he goes, I went to Stockton, and my wife went to Stockton. And I went, holy shit. And then I was at another event, and this young guy who played basketball for Stockton, I was in a dunk tank. It was for some charity thing. And I was talking to him and my wife was there and they met at Stockton and they're, they're much younger than us. And I was like, it was just that automatic bond as we talked about, but what, what was your takeaway from Stockton? I mean, what do you think made it so special and why so many of us still keep in touch? I meet my old roommates before COVID. We would go to my friend's house in Margate and there was like five of us. One would come from Toronto, one would come from Louisville and we do a weekend. I know I've seen you do it at your Ocean City place with guys, but what do you think it is? I mean, what is that special something that makes us different? Is it because we were like sort of, as you said, underdogs, but we're like in the middle of Pine Barrens and all the locals, the locals hated us or what do you think it is? Yeah, I really think it was a special time back then, you know, in terms of, rules as well like there was a lot of lot less rules than there is now in terms of you know um alcohol (laughs) you know for lack of a better word that's one thing but yeah like you said and and, and living in the courts i think was was really magical too it was like your own little you know once you move you probably had in dorms you know you had dorm friends and then you moved to the courts i would imagine right was that the process we didn't have the dorms that used to be our, where our soccer field was actually where the dorms were. Um, and then living in the courts, like it was just a little, little magical little area, like your own little fraternity out there, you know, and, and the friendships and, and, uh, you know, I just got back from a wedding about a month ago from the outer banks and one of the sons of the son of, you know, one of our friends. So we had six, you know, six couples there, you know, from Stockton, all Stockton people. And, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but, it was, you know, it was a magical time. I think we were a lot more independent than kids are now, too. You know, like, you know, just, just you know, they're just, you know, we it was where we grew up. It was where we became of age. And, uh, you know, I know everybody has special college memories. And I, I got the coach at Lafayette, which was great, and Northwestern. But I, I wouldn't trade my Stockton experience for for anything, to be honest with you. And it's where I came of age, you know, from and, and really had my eyes opened up to, you know, there's more to life than yes, just even where they were in South Jersey, but there was more, you know, you just met different people that, you know, just, just, and, and then the success of the people that, you know, from our group in terms of, you know, presidents of, you know, a company that has 12,000 employees, you know, my roommate, Pat, beyond the doctor of audiology, you know, just a lot of successful people. And maybe we gravitated towards each other because, you know, we, that maybe that's the, the friendship, you know, because they're just such great people too. You know, you kind of gravitate towards each other and, and, uh, but yeah, it was a special time. And I, I describe it as, you know, the, the golden ticket from, from Willy Wonka, you know, like we got the golden ticket, you know, uh, a ticket that would change my life forever and, and our lives, you know, and uh, like I said, I've, you know, even coaching at Northwestern for 20 years, I, I would not trade that, you know, my three years in the Pines for, for anything. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you for doing your show. Now, now, do you announce, I, I see, do you announce every Friday on the big, what's your big, big 10 schedule? I have a game this Saturday and then this, well, I don't know when this airs, but Saturday and Sunday this week. And then I don't have, then I have a game, a 10 days. And then that's the last game. That's the semifinals of the big 10 um that'll be my last game for this year uh because they don't uh they don't cover the the uh ncaa tournament the big 10 network doesn't have the rights to the ncaa tournament so um but uh yeah i I think i got eight games this year you know one a week pretty much and then i have two this week um i only had three last year so you know apparently they like my stories uh so um, you know, same thing, like a little bit self-depreciating underdog type things. And I can tell you when a kid comes on and, you know, last year we did Maryland, Indiana, and they had injuries. So one of the kids they started was a senior who had played three minutes in four years. Okay. Well, sure enough, they get a corner kick and he scores a header goal, right? He scores the goal, the kid who played three minutes. Uh, his, his whole career, four years, four years, three minutes of playing time. And then scores the goal in the biggest game of the year, you know. And I'm like, this is this is who I root for, right, as the underdog. So anytime they know the, the, to kind of team me up, anytime, you know, the kid comes on for the last five minutes and makes a good play, they'll be like, eh, you're going to go into your underdog story now, aren't you? I'm like, sure, Adam. So I, I just love it when – you know, kids put everything they have into it and maybe their talent's not as high, but, um, so you'll hear a lot of the underdog and the self-depreciating humor. You know, I, I, when I announce and I try to critique somebody who missed a goal scoring opportunity, I always, you know, make sure I say, well, I scored one goal at division three. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> but I've scored thousands up in the booth here. So just, 
you know, I'm not being too critical here, but, but uh, yeah, I have a game. Uh, I got UCLA Rutgers and then I have Maryland, uh, Indiana, the biggest game of the year, El Clasico of the big 10. And then I have the semifinal, which will be TBD. We'll, we'll you know, after uh, in 10 days and then that'll be it. And then the holidays come, I'll be back in South Jersey for, you know, a big chunk of that. But one thing I learned from not being, not coaching, the winter here is very cold. Yeah. Right? Usually the adrenaline carries you through because you're getting ready for your next season. Well, last year I found out it's just cold here. So I'm going to have to find some warm weather retreats after that. Right. Well, I want to thank you again, Pim. Uh, so people, uh, look up Tim Lenahan. Go go check out the movie, Messy and Me. Uh, it's, it's 28 minutes. It's a great story. And it is a great story. I remember watching that show. And uh, people, go uh, listen to past episodes of my show. Go to thecooptank.podbean.com or go to Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, uh, or uh, Spotify. Also go to coopertalk.net for my other podcast. I'm looking for sponsors for this show. If you want to sign up for a three-month sponsorship, I will bring you on as a guest for one of my episodes. That's a great deal because you're running with some big people there. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I want to thank Joe Ganjemi, my wonderful producer, and I will catch you guys next time. 